Please open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to get one to you. Raise your hand high and uh, we will get one to you soon. It's a Bible you can keep um, or leave at your seat when you leave this morning or keep to give away whatever you'd like, but we'd love to get the word in your hands. We're continuing our series to the Gospel of John. It's called Following Jesus Together, and that is uh, our prayerful aim together that in reading this gospel, we are encountering the living Christ, and in doing so, we're following him uh, together as his as his people, we have been, we've slowed down and been lingering for quite a while in this long section here in John chapter 5 as Jesus gives his first major uh, monologue or it's not a sermon, it's a partial rebuke of the religious leaders, but it's a first main teaching, as it were, that Jesus gives and that we are in the third part of that, the third week looking at Jesus' words, and we're closing out this time, that spans 16 to 47. We're going to be looking at 30 to 47 this morning. So if you're taking notes, the subtitle is Witnesses to Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 30 to 35 to set the context for this morning, pray, and then we'll look to God in his word. Um, As I read, beginning in verse 30, just note The number of times that Jesus, as he speaks, uses the words witness and testimony and synonyms of those words. John 5, beginning in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that testimony, that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Well, we will pause there. Now, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, your son is going to present testimony and witnesses to himself, that he is in fact God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. And the purpose of these testimonies and witnesses is so that we might be saved. And those of us who do know you, Lord, that our faith would be strengthened, our boldness would be fortified in believing and receiving all that your word says. Lord, we confess that unless... Your spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, gives us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to feel, minds to think. Unless you intervene in each of our hearts, even those of us who are believers, we are incapable on our own to know you. So, Lord, even now, as as we open your word, open us to your word. 
which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is authoritative, true, right, and beautiful. It is more satisfying than that sweet honey that we heard of earlier and more of, of, of greater value than all the gold in the world. Lord, let us treasure, prize, savor, and wonder at your word this morning. And in doing so, we know that your word made flesh is Jesus. And so any affection and desire and treasuring of your Bible is merely an affection and treasuring of Jesus. So accomplish that in our hearts this morning. Let us heed these witnesses that Jesus presents to himself, of himself. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. So we are, as I said a few moments ago, in this lengthy, very deep, and one of the most profound Trinitarian passages in all the Bible of Jesus giving a monologue response to the religious leaders. Why? Well, you may recall at the beginning of John 5 that Jesus is milling about in a crowd at the pool of Bethesda, and there's a man who's been an invalid for 38 years and Jesus heals this man this man leaps up takes his mat and with joy leaves this pool that he had turned into a talisman or magic place uh, thinking that the water would heal him but not God the religious leaders are present they see this this healing occurs on a sabbath and when Jesus did this Jesus broke their man-made rules they had added to the Bible. They had added to Moses' teaching on the Sabbath. And their response to Jesus, in fact, this healing by Christ now evokes a public response where they want to openly seek to kill and slaughter, destroy Jesus, extinguish the light of Jesus. And so we have been looking at these past now three weeks, at Jesus' response, not just to the religious leaders, but also to the crowds who hear Jesus speaking. And as he closes out this monologue, Jesus is now appealing to witnesses. And these witnesses have a testimony that they bear. And these are witnesses to Christ. And that's why the subtitle this morning is Witnesses to Jesus. And if you're taking notes, there's three main sections this morning here they are and they're actually commands to us and to all who hear the word number one believe the witness of john the baptist that's verses five, uh, verses 30 through 35 and then point number two believe the witness of the works of jesus and that's verse 36 and then we'll close our time Taking the third and fourth witnesses, collapsing them together, believe the witnesses of God's word and Moses. We're putting those together because what Moses says is part of God's word. And you'll see when we get there. And that's verses 37 to 46. So point number one, the first command to us and to all who hear, believe the witness of John the Baptist. Now before I begin reading verse 30 again, this is now the third time we have spent time in the Gospel of John looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prominent character in chapter 1. He was another prominent character in chapter 3. And so we will be spending a little bit less time on John the Baptist 
here in these verses and instead looking why the witnesses are so significant. So you'll see when we get there. Look again with me at verse 30, please. Jesus continues, I can do nothing on my own as a here I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 31, if I alone, note that word alone, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but, Jesus says, I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Well, these are uh, Jesus' opening words about the first witness he's uh, calling to the stand, so to speak. In this case, John the Baptist. But in what I just read, and as we get into the remainder of this chapter, you cannot miss how important the notion of witness and testimony is to Jesus in this section. In fact, if you go back through and count between verses 31 and 47, 10 times, 10 times does Jesus use either the word witness or testimony. And then 10 times, Jesus talks about the response that you and I are supposed to have, the religious leaders are supposed to have, what the response is to the witness of those giving testimony is. In other words, belief or accusation. Now remember the Last week, we looked at the judgment, how Jesus is the just judge. And we looked at heaven and hell and the eternal state of people. And here, now he is calling those witnesses to the stand to give credence to why Jesus could say that he was the judge and all that we looked at last time. So they they build off each other. But witness, testimony, belief, accusation, salvation, refusal, 20 times in these short verses... It's peppered through here. So what's going on and why is this so important? Okay, well, look at verse 31. Look at these words that that seem quite strange given all that we know about Jesus already. Verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, we have just spent the first four and a half chapters of Jesus communicating over and over and over again how he is the truth. He is the word made flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity, that he is true and he can say nothing false in all that we have seen. So how is he saying that my testimony is not true? This this soundbite taken out of context can be misunderstood. So let's just clear it up. Uh, One commentator notes this. Jesus is, is not declaring 
that his witness is untrue or false. When he uses the word true, it's a synonym of valid. Think valid. My testimony is not valid. If I alone, I said, remember, look at that word alone. So if only Jesus bears witness about Jesus, his testimony is not valid. Would be a more accurate way of understanding it. Jesus is not declaring his witnesses untrue or false because he cannot be untrue or false. Nor is Jesus claiming that it's, in, it's, it's um, um, inaccurate. Rather, Jesus is making the biblical point and case that being a self-witness in a matter in the Bible becomes invalid. A self-witness. In other words, the Bible teaches Jesus needs additional witnesses to his identity on a human level. Now, on a divine level, he, as he says elsewhere, he doesn't need anyone to bear witness about him. But the point is, God had established previously under Moses certain protocols and precedent and procedures in place to prove or to adjudicate whether someone was telling the truth or not. And that's where witnesses come in. That's why this is a big deal in the Bible. So Jesus, in beginning here with John the Baptist and the rest of our passage, Jesus is holding court, so to speak. He's calling witnesses to the stand. And he is calling these witnesses so that the testimony of Christ is proven, is proven true. So once again, John the Baptist is called up. But again, since we've already looked at John the Baptist quite a bit, let's ask with this time, why witnesses? Why is it so important? Well, the role of witnesses to prove the truth of a matter is a principle in Scripture that carries across both the Old Covenant and into the New Covenant. The principle of witnesses in the Bible can be summarized as a primary legal, uh, testifying, bearing witness to the true state of affairs by one who has a fuller knowledge or superior position. Okay, that's kind of a, a technical definition. It just means that a person saw it and they can speak of it when you didn't see it. And their testimony is meant to cause us to say, yes, I believe, or no, I refuse. So in other words, a witness in the Bible witnesses to the truth of a matter. And the community is to believe the witnesses. So using the term loosely, it's, it's almost like a witness kind of bears an office in the Bible, meaning they have a special status. They know something we don't, they know it or they experienced it. And then they have a role to stand before the community and they're able to express or tell what they witness. They give testimony. They have a message. So in that sense, in the Bible, a witness is authoritative. And their, their job is to state the truth of a matter. And the role of the audience is to believe the testimony and to respond justly and correctly. That's why Jesus is concluding all that he says in these verses, especially previously about all the judgment, about calling forth witnesses. 
This is how it's supposed to work biblically. And even for us, what's interesting is even though we live in a country of, of laws and codes and, and the like with reams and reams and reams of case law that lawyers will argue over at the, in a court of law, we still, as a people, place primary importance on witnesses, don't we? We call them to take the stand. The jury listens to the testimony of the witnesses, and the jury hears this testimony. You bring in an expert witness, and the expert witness is going to tell you how something works or whatever it is. And, and we still say, oh, you, the more witnesses you have, we're, we're more inclined to believe their testimony. That's still what happens in our culture despite all of the, the laws and codes and things that we have. It still happens on the news, doesn't it? It's, it's the reporter who's walking around, putting the microphone in people's faces, interviewing bystanders. And the bystander, we, we just tend to believe, well, I saw this, and I saw that, and then she said this, and then he said that, and then he did that, and we believe the testimony. Now, in our land, the testimony of bystanders on TV is not carrying as much authoritative weight as someone in a court of law but it still stands. So what Jesus is saying is not too far removed from our culture. But again, where does this principle come from? Well, it comes from, for example, there's many places, Deuteronomy 19.15. In Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses is speaking, and Moses, the Lord is speaking through Moses, about how Israel, even though they had judges, would be able to adjudicate or judge a matter. Deuteronomy 19.15 simply says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. So just that, a single witness shall not suffice. That's why Jesus in 531 says, if I alone bear witness. Because scripture requires, and Jesus is still, he hasn't inaugurated the new covenant. He's under Moses, and under Moses, he's required to the Mosaic covenant to give these witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 continues, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So that was the requirement under the Mosaic covenant in the land of Israel, Deuteronomy 19.15. So the principle is that the witnesses actually witnessed. They saw, they experienced the situation, they can give testimony, they bear witness to the truthfulness of a matter. They were considered authoritative in Israel, and their combined testimony, two or three witnesses, when it agreed, because if it disagreed, it probably exposed false witnesses, when the testimony agreed, it was to be believed by the community. In this actually same passage in Deuteronomy, provisions also made against false witnesses. So you can even have two or three or more false witnesses who rise up, liars and deceivers who rise up to peddle injustice and falsehood at the expense of the righteous. That's what we see at the illegal trials of Jesus when he has, right before he's, he's taken to the cross. False witnesses. In this idea of witnesses, Jesus carries this principle of witnesses right into the new covenant. So it doesn't change. 
It changes it a little bit. It goes under some transformation. But think about what our responsibility is as a gathered people called the church. Matthew 18, 16. Uh, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he does not listen to you, take two or three witnesses. This is Matthew 18, 16. If he does not listen to to you, take two others, excuse me, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus, in Matthew 18, 16, is quoting Deuteronomy 19, 15. It's continuing across the covenants. And the church is required that when there's a matter at stake, there needs to be witnesses. These two or three witnesses who go and witness the next confrontation between the Christians... They're supposed to witness the exposure of sin and the response of the sinning party. If the sinning party, in Matthew 18, refuses to listen to both the offended person and the two or three witnesses, it's the witness of the witnesses are supposed to tell the church. And what does Jesus require of the church? To listen to the testimony of the witnesses. That's what happens in Matthew 18. There's a flip side to the coin of witnesses. It's not only for crimes, and it's not only for people refusing to repent. Witnesses are also positively used for bearing witness to the truth of, for example, Jesus, the point of the passage. So a witness in the Bible, you need two or three of them or more, and their task is to witness to the truth no matter what it is. So for example... uh, Acts 1.8. Remember what Jesus tells the disciples in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you all will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So regardless of the circumstances, witnesses in the Bible corroborate the truth. And the multiple stories of multiple witnesses combined to give you confidence in the truth of a matter. So for Jesus in Acts 1.8, the first Christians, they walked with Jesus. They heard Jesus' teaching. They saw Jesus' miracles. They witnessed Jesus' death, his illegal trial and his death for our sins on the cross. They, they, they encountered Jesus resurrected. They experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, and they were to go be witnesses in the world. Pause on that point. Why is that significant? Because the witnesses wrote down their witness. Do you know where they wrote it? It's in your lap. It's the book, the Bible. God inspired the witnesses and has given us the testimony of those who encountered, experienced, and knew Jesus, but we have a multitude of witnesses who wrote it down for us so that we might receive and believe their testimony, but that's the last point. I get ahead of myself. But here we see that in Acts 1, Jesus is going to commission his disciples, all Christians, to be witnesses and go out and witness of the gospel of Jesus. That's worth a side note. Here's a side note. We tend to think of being a witness for Jesus as one-on-one evangelism in the street. 
and that's it. Or maybe you take someone to go, you know, two or three of you go and share the gospel on the street. That is included in being a witness, but I would argue biblically there is a greater witness in evangelism than you and a friend going out on the street. Do you know what it is biblically? It's us right now, right here, this called the church. Because how many witnesses are in this room right now who can take the stand and testify of the truth of Jesus Christ, the transformed life that he's given you, the deliverance of certain sins and struggles, and the ongoing power to fight certain sins and struggles. It is the witness of the church assembled for worship. The songs that we sing that are selected and chosen to proclaim the gospel, the prayers that we pray, the words that are preached in a sermon... And you responding and singing and saying, Amen, which means I agree. And us being here rather than somewhere else is itself evangelistic. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's why we've assembled. We have assembled because there is a God and He is true. And He has changed our life. And we are here to bear witness that this is not myths, fables, and fairy tales, but this book is the true story of the world and is the true story of your life. And we bear witness because we have been changed by the power of Jesus Christ, His Spirit in us working with His Word to bring us out of darkness and into light. So the church, that's why we are, friends, the theater of the gospel. That in part is why the book of Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So when the church churches, because church means assembly, that's what the word means. When we gather, when we church and we do this, everything that we do on a Sunday is intentional. Do you know why we have long prayers? Because it's intentional. Because we're supposed to give ourselves to preaching and praying the word of God. The announcements that we give, the songs that we sing, everything is intentional because this is not about you. It's about us worshiping the Lord and proclaiming the gospel to those who are here, both in um, word and portraying the reality of the gospel and how we interact. Even, that's why when we have fellowship time, we're not taking a break, like pause worship, say hi to somebody, unpause worship. Fellowship time is part of our worship because that's an opportunity for you to ask someone a pointed question. How are you doing in the Lord? Do you know Christ? And to extend the love of Christ to someone else. That's a side note. But it's a side note worthy of us looking at what it means for us to be witnesses of Jesus. But here in our text, Jesus is making central his authoritative truthfulness by appealing to the witnesses of those who witness to him. And these witnesses, John the Baptist, the ones we're going to see, John the Baptist witnessed that Jesus is the Messiah Christ. The Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So for a first century reader and listener, that testimony would have been authoritative and sufficient for belief. And in our text today, Jesus is marshalling these four witnesses to prove the truth that he is the Messiah. And so this leads us then to the second point, as Jesus calls the next witness. Look at verse 36. Believe the witness... Of the works 
of Jesus. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than John. See, so that, that verse relates to the previous verse where he said if he, um, his, his testimony isn't true, it's more valid. Because here he's saying his testimony is greater than John's. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So witness to the stand number two, the works of Jesus. Jesus' works bear witness. They testify also, just like John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But that begs the question, how do the works of Jesus bear witness? Well, first, what are works? At one level, Jesus' works that he does that the Father has given him are the entirety of the mission the Father gave him. From incarnation, right, God become flesh, to Jesus' seated session in the heavens and everything in between. On a narrower level, level, the works of Jesus are his teachings. Those are works. His signs, right? Turning uh, water to wine, healing of the man and more. Jesus' miracles, his teaching signs and miracles, all those works, they accomplished and they culminated in the cross and empty tomb. So not only do signs and miracles authenticate the message of the messenger. That was something required in the Old, Old Testament. The signs and miracles of Jesus also reveal the power and truth of Jesus. Because we've seen this before as we looked at this earlier about signs in the Gospel of John. Whenever Jesus does a miracle or a sign, he's just not a conjurer of cheap tricks. Jesus is actually breaking in future glory and a universe no longer cursed into the present. So Jesus was not a healer for being a healer's sake. Healing was theological. Jesus was not a teacher for wisdom's sake. All of Jesus' teaching was theological. Jesus was not a miracle worker for miracle's sake. No, his miracles undid the curse in that moment and they brought future glory into the present. The works of Jesus fulfilled and completed prophecies of the prophets that Jesus was the last Adam, righting all the wrongs of our first father. Recall, Jesus is saying these things about his works bearing witness as you have an invalid man leaping for joy, no longer being invalid after 38 years, and the religious leaders wanted to kill him for it. Uh, Listen to Isaiah 35. Here's a prophecy. Speaking of what the Messiah would do. Then, this is Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Just those two verses... 
is a snippet of the messianic expectation of the Old Testament. That a man was coming who would be God in the flesh. And when he came and when he touched people, spoke to people, when he looked to people, when he thought of people, that he would do these things. Or how about Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That word anointed is uh, messiahed. He's messiahed me to bring gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. Of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus had works to do. Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was bringing the future into the present. In fact, do you realize that all the miracles of the Bible, especially those of Jesus, are the realest and truest things to ever happen in this fallen world? Everybody was shocked and awed, and on the one hand, rightly so, But on the other hand, they shouldn't have been shocked and awed. Sin, sickness, brokenness, disease, mischief, mayhem, problems, confusion, and everything in between are not native and natural to God's good creation. Those are all sins and effects of the fall. So even our sicknesses, our sicknesses, will not be present in future glory. So when Jesus healed the layman, when he heals the sick, that's normal. You should expect that. And that's a glorious thing. And those things bear witness that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Which leads us then to the final two combined witnesses. Believe the witnesses of God's word and Moses. Believe the witness of John the Baptist. Believe the witness of Jesus' works. Now believe the witness of God's word and Moses. Look at our final verses, verses 37 down to 47. And the Father who sent me, he himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse To come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have 
the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For, verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And Jesus ends his speech and off he goes. And I presume the religious leaders are both dumbfounded and infuriated, seeking to kill him. You look at verse 37, we have these two witnesses. We're looking at these two witnesses of the father and Moses. Based on the context, when, you, when it says, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, uh, this is likely not a reference. It's not a reference to Jesus' baptism. For example, remember in Luke 3, 22, when Jesus comes out of the water, so God the Son comes out of the water, uh, God the Holy Spirit descends from heaven like a dove, and then God the Father speaks from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Gospel of John doesn't even mention the baptism of Jesus. So, so that's why it's most likely not referencing that. When you look at the context, verse 38 answers the question, how did the Father bear witness? It's this, you do not have his word abiding in you. The witness of the Father in verse 38 is the Father's word, and the Father's word is the Bible, a.k.a. the word of God. This is part is why we're collapsing these together because Jesus is going to appeal to Moses as a witness, but Moses is in the word and part of the word, and so the Father is over the word, and so he's kind of bringing these two witnesses together. They're intertwined. God the Father and Moses. But look again at verse 39. Look at these shocking words and exceptionally sobering words. You Search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Or verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. The flip side then of Jesus' words, if you don't believe me, you don't believe Moses. And, and if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible and the one who is, through whom God established the Mosaic or Sinaitic or Old Covenant. So the uh, first big part of our Bible is named after this uh, marriage-like relationship that Moses mediated between uh, God and the people of Israel. And Jesus is claiming that when Moses wrote those first five books... Those first five books are about Jesus. You know, a very common mistake that Christians make today is to think that the 
uh, only so-called predictive passages are the ones that refer to Jesus. And so you, you could have gone down to the Christian bookstore and you find the 100 prophecies of Jesus and things along those lines. I have books like that on my shelf or 30 prophecies of Jesus in, this, in the book of Isaiah or something like that. Meaning that we tend to think that unless the New Testament cites an Old Testament verse to say that's predictive of Jesus, the rest of it is not predictive of Jesus. That's wrong. And that's not what the Bible is talking about. Jesus is saying that the entire Bible, in different ways, all of it is about Jesus. The whole Bible bears witness to the good news gospel of Jesus Christ. Who he is as God in the flesh, what he would do living our lives in our place, dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the grave, ascending into heaven and more. Jesus is not teaching allegory. You know what allegory is? Finding a, a hidden spiritual meaning not intended by the author in a text, Aesop's Fables. Um, Paul uses allegory in the book of Galatians. That's the only place. We're not supposed to use allegory to find hidden Jesuses in hidden places. Uh, uh, that's um, eisegesis, reading Jesus into the Bible. Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. We have to find him the right way. Now, the point of this message is not to give a lecture on proper hermeneutical method, which is why I got my, I got my doctorate in this. So it's, I love nerding out on this. But just know, just know that Jesus' point is that He's the main point of the Bible, not you. And Jesus' main point is that his gospel is the meta-narrative storyline of this book. And that when you get up in the morning or afternoon, whatever your deal is, when you listen, when you go to the Bible, you are encountering Christ. Jesus is the fullness. He's the main character. This book exists because the Father loves the Son. Remember from the previous message? And Jesus is the fullness of all this book is about. And all the little sub-stories piece together to give you the big story of, of Jesus. So when you read your Bible, and when you look at these words every single time, whether you realize it or not, you are having a verbal encounter with Christ. So in that sense, it's the truest type of magic book used in a best C.S. Lewis type way. Because all other books are false when it comes to explaining to you the true story of the world and what hangs in eternity. But this book, the Bible, this is the only book that is inspired, spoken of God himself. And therefore, it takes the spirit of God to illuminate and give you understanding when you encounter this book. So your Bible is meant to be a verbal encounter with Jesus himself, who is the word made flesh. That's, that's why you've heard me say before that if we could put skin and bone on the Bible, who would be here? Jesus would. Jesus would. Remember John 1? And amazingly, amazingly then, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders that if you disbelieve Jesus, it proves 
you're disbelieving Moses. And these guys were all about Moses. In fact, verse 45 tells us that Moses will accuse every person who does not believe that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. If Moses could have um, come down from heaven in that moment, or come up from the grave in that moment, and spoken to these religious leaders, he would have said to them, you're missing it. Everything that I wrote, that God inspired me to write, God inspired to be written in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it's all about Jesus. Here he is, and you're plotting to kill him. You fools! Is what Moses would have said. Or something like that. He had a temper problem. (laughs) Moses accuses them. And they don't realize that the very one they're plotting to kill, it's his very death, will be perhaps their means of salvation or their means of condemnation. And that's the sad irony. The very thing the religious leaders placed at the center of their lives. This is unbelievably sobering to me. The very thing these men placed at the center of their lives and built their lives upon is the very thing they misunderstood and missed. Is that you? Maybe the scarier words in the Bible than these is what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So even within the umbrella of the new covenant in Christianity, there are going to be those who even dedicated their lives to Christ on the surface, but had still had dead hearts and were not truly regenerate and converted. It can be easy to go through religious motions. It can be easy to go through religious activity. It is getting harder, meaning... It used to be, not too long ago, that it was somewhat respectable to be a church-going man and a church-going woman. It gave you some political capital. That's why you still see, in large part, politicians appealing to some type of church experience. I wonder to how many of them, Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart, me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But... We are supposed to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And that means examining yourself is not looking at your own skills and abilities to cling to Christ. It's Christ's skill and ability to cling to you. Now, being a follower of Christ does mean transformation. We do bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But if you use the fruit of your repentance as the only measure and marker of how well you're doing as a Christian, you will crush yourself and fail because you're turning the gospel into something about you and not Jesus. Rather, we pray for and look for Christ's activity in our hearts and see the spirits moving in us. And in doing so, we know that we are in fact held by Christ. What these religious leaders thought was devotion to Moses 
they thought it was devotion to Moses was actually disobedience to Moses. How could this be? Maybe the Bible was broken. What do you think? Thank you, Hannah. No, the problem was not with the Bible. The problem was with their hearts. Look at verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. Stop for a second. We know that in first century Judaism and beyond, they memorized all of Tanakh, which is the, the whole Old Testament. What do you mean I don't have the word abiding in me? I have the whole thing memorized. How shocking of a statement is that? You do not have his word abiding in you for, here's why, here's how you know you don't have the Bible memorized. You do not believe the one whom he sent. So if you know Bible, but don't know Jesus, you don't know Bible. To have God's word abiding in you is to believe in Jesus. For anyone to say that they have God's word and not receive Jesus in truth as the son of God incarnate, then they don't actually have the word of God in them. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not a Bible problem. It's a heart problem. Their heart was full of the word and they didn't get it. And here in verse 40, you refuse. What was their will? Their will was to reject Jesus. It's what they wanted. It made them happy to plot Christ's death. Verse 35, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. Look at that. These guys are sneering and jeering, plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus is telling them, I'm saying this to you so that you could be saved. One is looking to rescue from eternal damnation. Jesus is rescuing them. And they're looking to extinguish the light of God. They're refusing hearts. Refuse the exclusive salvation that Jesus offered. But for those of us who hear, today we are saved. But I want to ask you, do you hear today? Do you hear Christ? Do you hear Jesus who still speaks to us from his word, from these very words, these very witnesses? We are not flies on a wall watching something go down in the first century between Jesus and religious leaders. Friends, the point of these witnesses of John the Baptist, Jesus' works, God's whole Bible, and then focusing in on Moses is so that you would be saved. So that you would believe these witnesses. They're taking the stand this morning to tell you that there is a God and he has come. His name is Jesus and he has come to save. What is so sad is Jesus tells these guys in verse 42, I know That you do not have the love of God within you. Do you remember 3, 19 and 20? Just a couple chapters previous. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people, note this, loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why Jesus can say, I know that you don't have the love of God within you. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. This is the greatest juxtaposition of all. Darkness loves darkness. Darkness hates light. They refuse to come to Jesus. 
But Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world. Darkness hates the light, for God so loved the world. That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Believe! That's what the witnesses are telling you this morning if you don't know Jesus. And, and if you do know Jesus, but your, your, your faith is, is weak and it's waxing lukewarm and, and you're, you're doubting. Friend, believe. These witnesses are speaking to you from the stand to believe that God's love planned the gospel, prepared the gospel, sent Jesus to perform the gospel, and the Spirit of God applies the gospel. For God so loved the world, He loves you. Come to Jesus. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not teaching that all people will be saved, that's the heresy of universalism, but teaching that some people from all of the world will be saved. Jesus is the physical embodiment of the love of God. And his cross and empty tomb are the emblem of his love. You cannot doubt God's love for you. We're prone to look at our circumstances and situations and define God's love by how we feel and maybe the way things are going, whether our dreams are fulfilled or not. That's not where you look for God's love. That's where you look for his work in your life to make you more like Christ. You look to the cross to see God's love for you and his empty tomb. It takes a John 3 new birth to appreciate Jesus. You either love Jesus or you refuse Jesus. And these are not merely, merely feelings that we so often reduce them to. For Jesus, this is a matter of heart belief. Because Moses will either accuse you or you believe. And that's what it comes down to. Do you believe or will you be accused? You may not agree with what Jesus says here. But you do have to agree that he says it because it's written down. So, so the reason Christians are so passionate we are about telling people about Jesus and worshiping Jesus is because there is an accusation coming. And we learned last time that Jesus is a judge who will sit on a throne and separate all peoples. Friends, this is an invitation for you to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ. And for those of us who do know Christ, to have our faith strengthened in Jesus. Do you have the love of God in you? How do you know? Because you love Jesus in spirit and truth. The lame man believed and leapt for joy. And those who knew the Bible best actually knew the Bible least and refused Jesus. It's the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his works, the witness of the Bible, the witness of Moses, they're witnesses to Jesus. And Jesus calls them to the stand for you to believe or to be accused. What verdict will hang over you? Let's pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We rejoice that because of your love, you have come down to save sinners such as us. Lord, in your amazing wisdom, you have set your love upon us. And God, I pray that if any in this place doubt the goodness and greatness of your love, you would overcome and overpower that by your spirit to show forth your love to them.
Father, you are a good Father. And so we thank you on this day for being a Father to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.